Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S.-North Korea summit ended early without an agreement. Here's President Trump at the press conference. Basically, uh, they wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety, and we couldn't do that. They were willing to denuke a large portion of the areas that we wanted, but we couldn't give up all of the sanctions for that. So we continue to work and we'll see, but we had to uh, walk away from that particular suggestion. We had to walk away from that. Will all the sanctions that are currently in existence remain, sir? They're in place. Uh, You know, I was watching as a lot of you folks over the weeks have said, oh, uh, we've given up. We haven't given up anything. And frankly, I think we'll end up being very good friends with Chairman Kim and with North Korea. And I think they have tremendous potential. I've been telling everybody they have tremendous potential. That's President Trump in Hanoi. As we heard on the BBC newscast, North Korea's foreign minister also had a press conference in Hanoi where he said that they were only seeking partial sanctions relief, uh, contradicting President Trump. We go now to Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago. Bruce is the author of The Korean War, Korea's Place in the Sun, amongst other books. Good to see you, Bruce. Good to see you, Jerome. Who could believe that there would be some kind of misunderstanding between uh, North Korea and the United States after all this talking? Well, it's still surprising because uh, among people in Washington, uh, Beltway experts, uh, inside the Beltway experts, there was a consensus that there would be an agreement with three or four important points. Uh, And I think there was an agreement drafted and it was going to be signed in the afternoon after their lunch. And something happened in the morning uh, in the talks with uh, Kim Jong-un that not only led to no agreement but no lunch uh, and and Trump uh, departed very quickly. Uh, I myself don't know what happened and I I think neither does anybody else uh, outside of the room. Uh, But I do think Secretary of State Pompeo and, and National Security Advisor Bolton were much more active in this summit than in the first one in Singapore. Uh, and they're both hardliners. I mean, Bolton has been on record for more than 20 years at saying his policy toward North Korea is that North Korea should disappear. It should, you know, regime change. John Bolton is the person who broke up the agreed framework agreement basically for the Bush administration. That's right. And even before that, he told the New York Times that his policy toward North Korea was the end of North Korea. He went to the shelf and pulled out a book uh, with that title, uh, for a New York Times reporter. I think that was in 1999 or 2000. Uh, so <clears throat> what's surprising is that Trump <laughs> apparently listened uh, to his advisors. Now, I was reading that um, there's a new UN on- U.S. envoy to North Korea, and he's someone who is an accomplished diplomat, who uh, is a good interlocutor, and I imagine he kind of hammered this thing out or did hammer this thing out or some, some, some reports I read said, well, he's the, the North Koreans wouldn't do business with him because they wanted to get to Trump, Trump personally and do business with him. Uh, in, in that sense, this was a better prepared summit than the one in Singapore, but it wasn't prepared at all like previous meetings with North Koreans. Uh, of course, there haven't been any between a sitting president and the North Korean leader Uh, But there have been 25 years of meetings uh, where all kinds of preparations go forward for weeks and months uh, in advance of of a meeting. The South Koreans and the Japanese are consulted very closely and none of that happened leading up to this summit. I mean 
Steve Bagan did uh, have some discussions with the North Koreans. Uh, but I think this is another hallmark of the Trump presidency. He goes into these meetings pretty much unprepared and not having read his uh, briefing papers. President Moon of South Korea was anticipating a deal himself, it looks like. He was going to give an address on national television and talk about future steps with North Korea. Um, <laughs> that is, um, he's holding the bag there. I think he's the most disappointed among uh, these uh, three leaders uh, about what happened. You're right. Uh, I was watching a lot of South Korean TV last evening. There was just wall-to-wall coverage. I mean, they <laughs> they caught Kim Jong-un smoking a cigarette uh, on a train break somewhere in China. He looked like Humphrey Bogart the way he smoked it. And they ran that one over and over <laughs> again. Uh, but uh, President Moon has been the real mover ever since his inauguration behind this engagement with North Korea. They've got all kinds of plans that uh, they want to push forward, mainly economic uh, plans uh, with North Korea. Uh, And all they needed was a dispensation from President Trump uh, that uh, South Korea could avoid the sanctions regime that's in place uh, and go forward with uh, restoring the Kaesong export zone, building other export zones, retying the railways, things like that. And now all of that is again on hold. Well, can President Moon patch this thing up? And it's, it's, a, it's almost like a race for Trump's brain between his advisors and the rest of the uh, community who's negotiating on this. You know, the National Interest magazine a couple weeks ago asked me to predict what was going to happen at the uh, summit. And they said, we've got 76 experts who are predicting what's going to happen in the summit. I said, I didn't know there were 76 (laughs) experts on North Korea. And I I refused to do it uh, two weeks in advance. I mean, what are you going to say? But I finally did give a long interview to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists yesterday uh, and uh, predicted that there would be an agreement. Uh, and, and I was wrong. And i that's the last time I'll ever try to predict <laughs> Trump's behavior. You may remember that before the Singapore summit, he uh, suddenly announced that the summit was off. And then about two days later, the summit was back on. Uh, and I, I, I just don't know how you can predict the behavior of, of uh, a president who was probably watching uh, the Cohen hearings, uh, you know, most of the time while he was in uh, Hanoi. Do you think um, people are speculating on what kind of effect that had? It certainly had an effect on their press interactions there with uh, the the U.S. banning certain people who were yelling uh, questions out at President Trump, certain journalists. It it was a weird scene. It was a weird scene, completely unprecedented. Uh, And uh, on South Korean television, it utterly – almost unbelievable that uh, Kim Jong-un would sit there with an American president and and take at least a couple of questions from the press. That was a huge advance for him. And he looked, uh, it's the only time I've seen him uh, look a bit nervous. He usually swaggers around uh, like his grandfather. Uh, And that was a big advance. But then they're also including, you know, Trump and his press secretary trying to protect him from getting too many questions, which is pretty funny. I also found it – I mean Trump does have an ability to stick his foot in his mouth when, when no one is asking him to do it by uh, saying, well, I talked to Kim Jong-un and he didn't know what happened to Otto Warmbier. Uh, I mean it's the same thing with the Saudi uh, killing of Khashoggi. 
Yeah, he's not. Um, he, he he, in a way, uh, for his purposes, not not worrying about any of that is fine. That that, that he doesn't care. He he doesn't care. Uh, but it it, uh, I can't believe that the Warmbier family was uh, happy with with that uh, that bit. And, you know, we hear all this, uh, my friend, my great leader, beautiful letters, we fell in love. He's he's constantly, you know, even in the small clip that we played, lathering up uh, Kim. I, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, how do you make, what do you make of that? Well, he does it with all the dictators that he likes, uh, General Sisi, uh, the Saudi prince, uh, Putin. Uh, in this case, I think he sees... Uh, the 35-year-old Kim Jong-un is a kind of son that he can cajole along. Uh, he prides himself on being able to ingratiate himself with people and manipulate people. Uh, that's what he did his whole career, I think. Uh, but it is odd. There's no question about it. But he seems much more at ease with dictators than he does with uh, our democratic leaders like uh, you know, the ones in, Eastern Europe, in, uh, in the EU. Uh, you know, President Trump's um, – he's got um, some ideas here about ending the Korean War. That didn't come up. Denuclearization didn't really end up being a thing. Everybody thought that was going to be a thing. Uh, what do you make of the rest of the issues that seem to be lurking in the summit that never made it to the top? Well, the uh, idea of an end to the Korean War was simply going to be a signed agreement not including China, as far as I know, uh, that the war was over. Not a peace treaty or anything like that, uh, but something maybe two-thirds of the way toward a peace treaty eventually, something very easy to do. Uh, also establishing liaison offices in Pyongyang and Washington. Uh, the North Koreans had agreed to that, and that seemed uh, easy to do. But I think what happened is that the North Koreans... Uh, offered to give up their Yongbyon plutonium facility, which from their point of view, it's a massive investment. It's a huge facility. They, they have uranium enrichment uh, there as well uh, in return for lifting sanctions, apparently, according to their foreign minister, some sanctions, not all of them. The problem with that politically in the United States is that that's the third time we bought that horse if it had happened. Uh, that facility was completely frozen from 1992 to 2000, 1994 to 2002. And then it was uh, frozen again in the second Bush administration. So the North Koreans uh, were, I think, just uh, stupid to try and sell that horse a third time. Uh, not that it isn't giving up something. It's giving up a big thing. It denies them any access to uh, fuel for atomic bombs. Uh, but in Washington, Trump would have been excoriated for for buying Yongbyon <laughs> the third time. Well, what kind of deal is out there then? If there, if you can't even accept that as a, I don't know what. I guess it'd be a starting point. But you're never going to get the North Koreans to give up their full nuclear program. It seems that uh, most people seem to believe that now. Uh, but so well, you should take what you could get. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, the denuclearization, uh, that was another issue that came up uh, with a lot of disagreement on how you define it. In the case of North Korea, uh, you can take all of their bombs and missiles and, and plutonium out of the country, but you have thousands of scientists who know how to make an atomic bomb, and that's much more important than uh, than the facilities to make it. 
In the case of the U.S., the North Koreans want the U.S. to pull back their nuclear threat from the peninsula. Uh, but uh, I, I mean that's very important because uh, most people don't know and the mainstream media doesn't really get into it at all. The U.S. has intimidated and blackmailed North Korea with nuclear weapons going back to the Korean War. Uh, but you can get the U.S. to take all their nuclear weapons back to Kansas and they can still lift a bomber in Kansas and bomb North Korea you know, uh, and come back without landing, uh, getting refueled. Uh, uh, so ultimately there's, there can't be a complete denuclearization. Uh, but there can be a, uh, an end to testing, which, which is very important because the North Koreans suspended their testing when they were right at the point where – People didn't know if they could marry a nuclear warhead to an ICBM, and they haven't been able to prove that they can do that or that they have a reentry uh, able to uh, reenter uh, the atmosphere uh, with a heat shield that works. So uh, they paused their testing right there, and that was, I think, because they were under tremendous threat from the Trump administration at the end of t uh, 2017. Uh, but that's entirely doable. No more testing. Uh, mothballing the Yongbyon uh, reactor, uh, revealing some sites. Uh, they're never going to reveal them all, but uh, particularly if there's another uranium enrichment site, there apparently is, according to the CIA, outside of Yongbyon. Things like that can go a long way to, you know, if the U.S. reciprocates. But if, it, if you're John Bolton or Mike Pompeo and you want full and complete denuclearization, you're never going to get that deal from the North Koreans. That Why would they give up their nuclear deterrence when that's uh, their main card to keep us staying in power? Uh, I mean, I think many Americans have a, a very caricatured view of North Korea because the leader is wearing a 1940s haircut and trying to look like his grandfather and so on. But if you just look at them as Team Blue and the U.S. as Team Green, I wouldn't give up my nuclear weapons uh, if you have John Bolton as the national security advisor uh, on record for 25 years wanting to overthrow the North Korean regime. Uh, also, the, the whole policy of denuclearization, uh, particularly uh, among both the foreign policy establishment, Republican and Democratic, basically says the only thing we're interested in North Korea about is them giving up their nuclear weapons. That's it. Once they do that, uh, the best thing that can happen is they disappear, erase themselves. There's no sense that North Korea might have interests of its own that it needs to preserve. So I don't know where we go from here, but Trump is a, a mercurial, volatile person. And it wouldn't surprise me if he turned around tomorrow morning and, and made a deal with North Korea or if we uh, went back into a, a very difficult uh, period of hostile relations. I, I really don't know where it's going to go because he's done both. If North Korea wants more attention and more push, they can just test. Exactly. Uh, given the current atmosphere and the current environment, that would be a, a real crisis. Uh, but, and I don't think they're going to do that. The, the main reason I think they're not going to do it is because their relations with the South are so much deeper than they ever have been since the Korean War. They have a thaw going on. I mean, I, I myself never thought I would see uh, South Korean TV covering every last aspect of, of Kim Jong-un. Uh, when I first went to Korea, Kim Il-sung's face couldn't appear. Uh, if it right. appeared in Newsweek, they'd black it out with tar. So it, it's, it, that is a real breakthrough. 
Bruce Cummings is professor of history at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Korean War, Korea's Place in the Sung, amongst other books. Thanks for joining us and talking about the talks with North Korea. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with the man who, a resident of Gaza, whose Facebook post inspired the Great March of Return. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Gaza's Great March of Return is still going. On February 24th, there were around 8,000 people at the weekly protest. A 15-year-old was killed. 41 people were injured by rounds fired by Israeli Defense Force troops. A Facebook post by my next guest inspired the Great March of Return. Ahmed Abu Artima is a Palestinian writer, organizer, and nonviolent activist. He's on a tour of the U.S. with the American Friends Service Committee's Gaza Unlocked campaign, and he speaks in Chicago at Grace Place on March 1st at 7 p.m. Thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you, Ahmed. Thank you for you. I'm happy to be here. How did you get involved in nonviolent activism? نعم أنا أؤمن بالنضال السلمي لأن النضال السلمي يراهن على الضمير الإنساني يراهن على قوة العقل وليس على قوة العضلات النضال السلمي هو أكثر أخلاقية I believe in peaceful struggle because when it comes to peaceful struggle people count on human conscience and they also count on the power of the intellect and not the power of the muscles. Peaceful struggle and non-violence can be more moral and I was inspired by many stories and many accounts of people's struggles for justice. Today, if we look around, there are economic powers in the world that achieved that with soft power. I believe that future is for soft power. Today, people build influence not by weapons, but with the power of culture, by the power of narrative, economy, and intellectual and civilizational openness between people. I read about the many human experiences, such as of uh, Mahatma Gandhi in India, in Nelson Mandela in South Africa, and Martin Luther King in the U.S. Um, those experiences inspired me. The advantage of peaceful struggle is that it brings out of all of us the most beautiful things about us, humans. It triggers the love of justice. Armed struggle, although I understand why people reserve to violence under certain conditions, as a result of them being subject to a lot of violence by the forces of oppression, it leads to the absence of an environment that would cause the absence of reason sometimes and the absence of the proper atmosphere to spread peace and to count on the conscience of people. Conscience becomes absent in the atmospheres of war and violent struggle and also peaceful struggle brings about the power of human morality. فإن المخزون الأخلاقي في النفوس يظهر 
You know, I wanted to ask you about how nonviolent activism is going here with Gaza and what the opinion of nonviolent activism is among the Gazan people. You know, it seems like a, a significant portion of the population is forearm struggle, as some others maybe not. But do people want uh, nonviolent activism? Did you see a change here during the Great March of Return? نعم يعني دعنا نسلط الضوء على طبيعة الواقع في غزة غزة هو مكان معزول جدا هي سجن حقيقي محاصرة من ثلاث جهات من الشرق والشمال بالأبراج العسكرية وبالسياج الفاصل من قبل الاحتلال الإسرائيلي ومحاصرة من الغرب بالزوارق أيضا حربية إسرائيلية. Okay, let us shed light on the reality in the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is an isolated territory bordered from the north and the east by Israeli military towers, by a separation fence, and from the west on its shore, surrounded by warships that seal off our coastal territory, and from the south we have borders with Egypt that most of the time are closed. In the Gaza Strip there are 2.2 million people who live in 141 square miles, and it's considered one of the world's areas with the highest population densities. And in Gaza, there are no factories and no job opportunities. And also, Israel has been restricting the entrance of goods and materials coming from our commercial crossings. And those are materials that we consider necessary materials for life. And also, the Gaza Strip is a very crowded area. This reality promoted the culture of armed struggle. So to call for civil struggle is considered a new event relatively. This model of struggle is uh, not very familiar in the case of the Gaza Strip and also in light of the conditions that we live in. So the success story here is that during the Great March of Return, there has been a mass popular interaction with the idea of civil struggle and nonviolent struggle, especially that forces from across all the political horizon supported this idea. The problem, however, is in the Israeli reaction to people's participation in a nonviolent action like the Great March of Return, because the Israeli response was violent, as if the occupation wanted people to lose faith in that method. I'm talking with Ahmed Abu Artima. He's a Palestinian writer, organizer, and human rights activist. He's on a tour of the U.S. with the American Friends Service Committee and their Gaza Unlock campaign. And he's speaking at Chicago's Grace Place on March 1st. We're talking about the Great March of Return, and eventually we're going to get to how we started it. I think a lot of people who see pictures of the Great March of Return see pictures of smoking tires and Palestinians throwing rocks at the border crossing. Is this indicative of what happens at the March of Return? It doesn't look like a nonviolent movement. It looks like guys throwing rocks and starting stuff on fire. Yes, uh, <laughs> الإعلام بطبيعته دائما يبحث عن الإثارة 
لذلك مشهد عشرة أشخاص يقومون بإلقاء الحجارة هو أكثر جاذبية لوسائل الإعلام من ألف شخص يجلسون على بعد 500 متر من السلك لكن الأغلبية في الواقع هم أناس كانوا يعتصمون لكن حتى هذه المرة than the scene of a thousand people who would be sitting um, 500 meters away from the fence and engaging in cultural or creative or artistic activities. But these manifestations, the the ones you asked about, such as throwing rocks or burning tires, how much did they pose a threat to the Israeli forces so that the Israeli forces use this scale of violence against the protesters? Statistics tell us that more than 160 people have been killed so far and more than 25,000 have been wounded and injured. Does the fact that like dozens of these youngsters did some of these actions justify this kind of response on the part of Israel? If we look at the statistics, almost no Israeli soldiers have been harmed as a result of these actions. Violence was one-sided. It came from one side and it was the Israeli side. And for political reasons and not because what was happening on the ground invited such a response. المتظاهرين السلميين لأهداف سياسية وليس بسبب أن الميدان دفعهم لذلك I wanted to ask you um, about your original Facebook post that inspired the great march of return could you tell us that story uh, نعم يعني أنا في يوم 9 ديسمبر عام 2017 بعد يومين أو ثلاثة من إعلان ترامب بأن القدس عاصمة لإسرائيل كنت في جولة بالقرب من السياج العازل شرق مدينة غزة وكان معي صديقي حسن نحن نحب أن نذهب إلى تلك الأماكن لأنها بعيدة عن زحام المدينة Yes, so on the 9th of December 2017 just few days after President Trump declared that Jerusalem is Israel's capital I went for a walk near the separation fence We like to go to these places east of Gaza away from the crowded cities seeking some quiet My friend Hassan went with me on this walk When we were almost near the fence, my friend Hassan told me, Look, Ahmed, this fence is what separates us from our villages and towns from which we were expelled in 1948. I looked at the fence and I saw the soldiers just beyond it, heavily armed and hiding behind mounds of earth. صديقي حسن أكمل وهو يشير إلى السماء. انظر إلى الطيور. نظرت إلى الطيور فإذا بها تتنقل بين الأشجار على طرفي السلك دون أن يقف أحد هنا جاءتني الخاطرة ودونت في ذلك اليوم My friend Hassan continued and pointed to the sky Look at the birds, he said I looked at the birds and I saw them moving between the trees on both sides of the fence and no one stopped them So this thought came to my mind which I wrote on my Facebook a few days later I wrote How easy the matter is Birds decide to fly so they fly What if one of us daydreamers saw herself a bird What if they didn't see the disastrous fence and only saw a tree on the other side of it. 
and then decided to sit under its shade. What if the far horizon told her, I'm all yours? So she walked further, seeking the horizon in a land unified by geography ever since. If that person was from Gaza, once they reached the fence, a bullet will land in her body. What's the business of this cursed bullet? To kill her dream and gun her down as if she committed a crime. Why do we complicate the simple matters? Isn't it the right of humans to move freely like birds? What threat to the world peace would a human create if he or she decided to wander in nature? Indeed, dogs, foxes, and deer are more aware for they don't recognize fences, jumping over them with no regard for the decisions and realities of politics. On that day, I discovered the real reason to hate the occupation. I hate it because it disrupts my evening walk, because it's against the laws of nature. It kills my dreams. I'm talking with Ahmed Abu Artima. He's a Palestinian writer, organizer, and human rights activist. He's on a tour of the U.S. with the American Friends Service Committee's Gaza Unlocked campaign, and he's speaking at Chicago's Grace Place on March 1st. What solution would be optimal? I mean, you have four children. What do you hope to see their future be like? Uh, الحل الذي أحلم به والذي لا أرى حلا غيره هو أن ننتمي إلى العصر الذي نعيش فيه أن تتخلى إسرائيل عن احتلالها وأن تتخلى عن تهجيرها وعن سجنها لشعب كامل. The solution that I dream of is that we would all belong to the era in which we live, and that means that Israel would give up occupation. expulsion and would become a democratic state for all of its citizens. I dream of removing all the walls between all the people. We, the Palestinian people, we want the implementation of international law and we also want to live in peace with our Jewish neighbors on the basis of citizenship and equality. We want people to be free. God created people free and this is the law that makes the most sense And we want to go back to this law. And I dream to live in a place where advantages and privileges are given on the basis of people's hard work and that people would have access to human rights and they would have access to resources equally and not on the basis of their religion, color or ethnicity. For supporters of Israel, it sounds like that is the destruction of the state of Israel that we hear so much about. That's the one-state solution. You've been in the U.S. for a little bit. There's a lot of resistance to a one-state solution. How do you convince people that Palestinians and Israelis would be in the best spot living together? I ask here, is Israel's preservation of its current state of existence, does that mean that it stays violating international law and locking up the indigenous people behind walls? 
is this reality which is incapable of being sustainable? Is this what Israel wants? Is this how Israel wants to remain forever in such manner? When I speak of justice and rights, I speak of the things that people, regardless of who they are or where they come from, be them African, European, Arab, Muslim, Jewish, and so on, I speak of principles that all of these people would agree on and would feel excited about and stand by. Can you tell me a little about what the march is like when you're there and what happens on a typical march day? طبعا يذهب من مختلف الفئات والأعمار هناك الفتيات وهناك الفتية وهناك الرجال الكبار في السن والنساء On the days of the march, people go near the fence, people from different ages and from different parts of the Gaza Strip, young women, uh, men and elderly and children. There is something magical about the fence area that make people in Gaza gravitate towards it. And that magic is the fact that going to this area, when people do that, they're capable of seeing their lands that were occupied and conquered in 1948. Even after 70 years of expulsion, people, refugees, still have their keys and their ownership papers of their property, of their houses, and of their lands beyond the fence. Going to the fence area has a spiritual effect on those people who are connected to their land because they're finally capable of seeing their lands and their villages. A typical day of the march is when thousands of people would sit down and do sit-ins away from the fence, sometimes 300 meters away, 500 meters, sometimes a thousand meters. And some people get way closer to the fence. And once they do, the Israeli forces attempt to keep them away of the fence by firing shots and by firing tear gas. Just in the past two weeks, three children were killed. Two of them were just standing at least 200 meters away from the fence. Ahmed Abu Artima is a Palestinian writer, organizer, and nonviolent activist. He's on a tour of the U.S. with the American Friends Service Committee's Gaza Unlocked campaign, and he's speaking at Chicago's Grace Place on March 1st. Is there a particular individual that you can't get out of your mind, a person that you met during this situation and sticks with you? Uh, نعم يعني ربما من أكثر الضحايا وأكثر الأشخاص في مسيرة العودة الذين يلهموني هو رزان النجار رزان النجار يعني تأثرت فيها بشكل كبير جدا لأنها يعني كانت تقوم بمهمة إنسانية واضحة جدا Um, from amongst the victims that I think of the most and that inspired me the most is perhaps Razan al-Najjar, the young Palestinian paramedic who was shot by the Israeli soldiers. Razan loved doing good and loved to help people. She was a paramedic 
on a human mission to help people to save the wounded. She had a beautiful soul and she was very kind and she had a very sweet heart. But despite that, the Israeli forces did kill her. Despite that, she was wearing the distinguishing outfit that distinguishes paramedics and medical workers on the field. Ever since she died, I have been thinking about her and have been inspired by her sacrifice and I continue to think of her and hold her memory. عن رزان قالت لي إنها سألتها ذات يوم وقالت لها ماذا لو أنك بينما كنت تسعفين I talked to Razan's mother on the phone a few days ago and her mother told me that one day she asked Razan what if on a typical day uh, during the march of return you found a wounded Israeli soldier on the ground what would you do? Razan answered I will help him my mission is humane and I don't distinguish between people because of who they are. This is someone who had a kind heart and who did her best to help people around her. And these are the people who Israel targets and kills during the March of Return. How hard was it for you to get out of Gaza and get into the United States and come on this tour? نعم قطاع غزة السفر فيه ليس قرارا سهلا يعني غالبية الناس في غزة بالذات من جيلي والأجيال التي ولدت بعدي لم يغادروا قطاع غزة مرة واحدة في عمرهم يعني هذا الشيء يعني مرعب أن تتخيل Yes, it is very difficult My generation have never had the opportunity to leave the Gaza Strip Can you imagine that people would spend their entire lives and they never had the chance to at least have one conversation with people from outside of this small territory? I've been trying to travel uh, without success for the past six years. As you know, the Rafah crossing does not open often, and this is the crossing between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. And the other crossing that links Gaza to the outside world is the Erez crossing, which is controlled by Israeli authorities. And this crossing is only open for very few categories, such as patients, international aid workers, UN personnel, and business people. So for the past six years, I've been unable to leave Gaza at least once. But I finally succeeded in leaving Gaza after I received an invitation from a rights organization that invited me to a human rights convention in Jordan. And then I also received at the same time an invitation from the American Friends Service Committee, AFSC, to participate in a national speaking tour to talk about the Great March of Return and to talk about my story here in the U.S. And it was a joyful feeling for me to see the crossing behind my back as the driver was heading towards Cairo in the Sinai Desert once you leave the Rafah crossing. It was a joyful feeling. I felt so much happiness and excitement as the car was driving and I was asking the driver to uh, drive faster because I never experienced crossing hundreds of miles without facing checkpoints and obstacles on the road. For a moment you were the bird. 
يا يا نعم هذا هذا كان شعورا جميلا ولكن يعني منقوص لانه انا يعني شخصيا نعمت بالحريه لكن لا يزال الناس داخل فلسطين لا يزال yes it's a beautiful feeling but it's still not complete because there are millions of Palestinians who haven't had the opportunity to feel the freedom and to be free and travel like I did. Ahmed Abu Atima is a Palestinian writer and organizer and human rights activist. He's on a tour of the United States with the American Friends Service Committee and their Gaza Unlocked campaign. Ahmed speaks in Chicago at Grace Place on March 1st at 7 p.m. And you can get more information about the tour at afsc.org slash Gaza March Tour. Thanks very much for being with us. Shukran kathiran Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with Israel's Consul General to the Midwest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Israel's elections are April 9th. One of the moves that Prime Minister Netanyahu brokered is an agreement between the Kahanist party, Atzma Yehudit, and two other parties. The Likud party had in the past actually been the one that banned uh, this Kahanist party from the Knesset. With me is Aviv Ezra. He is Consul General to the Midwest. Thanks very much for joining me, Aviv. Thank you, Jerome, for having me. Thank you so much. I wanted to talk about this Kahanist party. And for people who don't know, Meyer Kahana was a figure that advocated for expelling Israel's Arab population. And now the prime minister is brokering this agreement that would bring this party into a future government after April 9th. And I mean, this is obviously a very controversial thing. And the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee and the American-Jewish Committee condemned the merger this week. Are you worried about a rift between Israel and the American-Jewish community? Well, as you said, first of all, we're going to have the elections coming up April 9th, a lot of moving parts, a lot of changes, whether it's uh, through Netanyahu's Likud's party and uh, uh, the new party from the middle stream, Benny Gantz's party. To your question, as you said, in regards to the Kahana Party, in regards to the Kach movement, we, as the State of Israel, the government of Israel, said explicitly in the past, there is no room for racism or bigotry in Israel. In '85, we have legislated this law, basic law, that uh, legislated against incitement for racism and barring any parties with platform that incite. And like you said, Kahana himself, in 1988, in the election, the election committee has barred Kach from running on the grounds of the party's platform inciting for racism. So that was not acceptable, and that's where the, their, you know, that founding father of the Kach movement, Ghana, was totally barred from running. And the same today, when you're talking about uh, what you call the Otsmayu, the Jewish power, you know, we, we know these representatives, we know who they are, but we, I know, there's no, we've not seen their platform yet. And their platform, their actions, and their statement 
they will be inspected by their policy and by these actions. And if they will incite for racism or bigotry, they will be uh, expelled in the same way that the Americana was. Does this speak to a larger issue? And I was reading recently an article in Foreign Policy by Zev Sternhill with Hebrew University. And the gist of his article was that recent spats aside, Israel's right-wing government sees the illiberal nationalist leaders of Poland and Hungary as natural allies. They share a hostility towards human rights, enlightenment values, and the European Union. And Benjamin Netanyahu recently had a trip to Poland, and he seems very comfortable with illiberal nationalist leaders. Does this speak to a changing value system? Well, you know, you mentioned Polish, the Hungarian, uh, the Czech. These are all democratically elected leaders. We don't designate any leaders on the other side. They are also recognized by the world. So, we, you know, we're working very closely with many of our European countries that are uh, very close to Israel and very supportive of the, of the bilateral relationship. I mean, as you know, we have other challenges in Europe, and we're very close to certain uh, uh, countries like, like those who have a strong support for the major interests that we have, one of which is to build and maintain alliances against Iran. Recently in Warsaw, you're familiar with the summit that was convened over there, and these voices together send a clear message on issues that for us are crucial. They're crucial because they are crucial to the survivability of Israel. And the Prime Minister of Israel believes that uh, strong Israel is also an antidote to this uh, chronic disease called anti-Semitism. So in this sense, by really uh, strengthening these foreign, I would say, defense issues that collected to Israel, we are being able to combat also anti-Semitism both here and in, in Europe and in Israel, etc. Does it make it harder to argue against anti-Semitism if there is a Kahanist party that you're working with if you're the prime minister? So, as I said, I, I think a citizen in Israel, like a party, is innocent until proven guilty. So you guys have the First Amendment here. We have the same right for uh, freedom of speech in Israel. But that party, the minute it's going to start exercising or um, calling for any racist and bigotry kind of uh, remarks, as I said, there are legal mechanisms that are in place. And in Israel, like in the United States, these values of... Uh, Freedom of speech are very important, but when they cross the line and they go to elements that uh, are racist and uh, bigotry, uh, they will they will have to uh, go through the persistent procedure and the legal mechanism that I described earlier, and they will be extracted by law if they will be found to be falling in that category. At this point, we have not seen their platform. We have not uh, heard the statements that go directly to uh, issues that are, uh, are relevant to, to bigotry and racism. And, and if it will be happening, it will go to that certain uh, elections committee and they will be extracted. I'm talking with Aviv Ezra, the Consul General to the Midwest for Israel, and we're talking a little bit about some of the uh, values issues that have been in the news recently. I wanted to ask about a two-state solution and how this figures in. There was a political editor of the Jewish journal Shmuel Rosner yesterday who wrote in the New York Times that Israel's election shows how dead the two-state solution really is. And he went on to go describe how the political parties, none of them really recognize the two-state solution as what it's commonly been known as in the past. Is this, in a way, opening the door for people who 
want to argue for values like equality and a one-state solution together. The people who argue for a one-state solution, well, we're for equal rights for all people. We're for international law. We're for all these values that, you know, it seems like the government in Israel is nuancing on us. Well, as you know, and uh, I'm sure everyone that has visited Israel knows that there's uh, full equal rights uh, for any Arab Israelis uh, as opposed to any other other places around the world. They are elected to Knesset. They are in the executive branch. They are in the legislative branch. They are in the judicial branch. You're talking about, uh, of course, the, the Palestinians. And when it comes to the two-state solution, I think that uh, the prime minister was very clear about it. You know, it doesn't matter now if we put the, the it doesn't matter if we're putting the definition of or we're calling it uh, this or that. He says he is willing a hundred percent to make sure that the Palestinian neighbors of ours, regardless of whose narrative is correct or not, because this is not the point of this uh, this conversation, that they will have a hundred percent sovereignty to uh, handle their own everyday lives whereas they will also have parallel to that 0% uh, uh, opportunities to harm us. So what does that mean? You can call it a state, you can call it a limited state, you can call it state minus. At the end of the day, the Prime Minister, I think, is very committed to the fact that uh, the Palestinians will have the ability to rule themselves by themselves, but without an opportunity to later on harm us. I mean, we have the precedent of what happened in Gaza. The narrative was always, you know, you guys... It's all about the settlements. It's all about the occupation. So we extracted unilaterally all of our defense forces from Gaza. And they promised us that they will show there will be a case studies of making it to the new Singapore of the Middle East. But at the end of the day, what did we receive in return? We received three wars, thousands of rockets. And it's, you know, in a sense, something that shows that on the other side, you have to make sure that you have somebody who is willing and capable to deliver and taking that responsibility. I think our side, and if this is the last sentence that I can flag on this, is I think our side, Netanyahu, will be willing to make sure, as I said, to make sure that the other side has 100% sovereignty, but with 0% opportunities to harm us and our citizens in the future. Aviv Ezra is Consul General to the Midwest for the State of Israel. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about some of the value issues in the news. Thank you so much for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the One Earth Film Festival. It starts tomorrow and it runs for 10 days. It's the Midwest's premier environmental film festival. It features 33 films in 50 locations throughout the Chicagoland area. And I will talk with one of the narrators and producers of one of the films that's at the festival. His name is Jeff Bridges. He's a great big movie star and he's Uh, helped make a film called Living in the Future's Past about our ability to evolve and confront climate change. I hope you can join us tomorrow for Jeff Bridges Tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and uh, Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.